Hello and welcome to Life Beyond Sport. My name is Nick Keller. I'm the founder of Beyond Sport. And each week I get to sit with people from public life and talk about their life's journey through their three most meaningful sports moments. My guest today is the very embodiment of the journey of women's football. Mary Harvey was goalkeeper in the first women's FIFA World Cup. Um, and she went on to take part in the Olympics and indeed win gold medal at those Olympics. And then into a career in administration that took her from FIFA and now to the CEO of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Uh, we hear in the next uh, 50 minutes or so together how life as a goalkeeper, the pressure it brings, life at FIFA, and now life at the heart of sport and seeing how sport can play a greater role in positive change in our world. Please welcome Mary Harvey. Um, hi, Mary. How are you doing at the moment? You're, you're all the way in Seattle. You're an early riser. Yeah. Um, <laughs> greetings from the Pacific Northwest, where, of course, it's raining. <laughs> well, in London, it's raining as well. Terrific. Not, not surprising. <laughs> um, so I think the most important thing, as you, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, as CEO of this becoming more influential Centre for Sport and Human Rights, COVID's had such a seems to have had such a vast impact on inequality. Um, how do you view it from your position of CEO of this organization? How how far back has COVID set us in terms of human rights and equality? Uh, that's a great question, Nick. And I don't know that we know yet. Um, I think I think like many other areas, be it sector development or impact in other, we're not I, I think the actual impact will be seen um, in the months to come and even in the years to come. Um, it's, been, it's been a seismic shift, right? And we track three things uh, at the center that we've been looking at. Uh, return to play and athlete health and safety, mm-hmm. be it the Olympic Games to pro leagues to, you know, early on world players was looking at, you know, very early on in the pandemic, they were identifying things where, you know, mandatory flu shots or they were being asked to sign waivers, right? So this Waving is the World, Play, the World Players Association. Yes. Uh, this kind of group that you were very closely with, yeah. Yeah, part of, part of our advisory council. Um, so athlete health and safety, and it's occupational health and safety, right? Um, so they're workers and they're going to work and we have a pandemic. Um, and then the other two areas are, you know, existential risks to professional sport for sure right i mean look at the the size and scope of existential decisions that sports bodies are being asked to make Mm. um you know moving colossal events um you know moving the premiership around all those things aren't easy things to do um and as that's happening um we've seen unfortunately things that we were concerned about come to pass which Mm. is the impact on girls and women's sport and sports for persons, um, you know, dis- disabled persons. So um, that's, that's the other area is our existing inequalities going to be exacerbated mm. or are they going to be addressed? We have an opportunity and we're at an inflection point. And the third area is impact on children, right? So you have kids, it's almost like a lost generation, right? Mm. Uh, we, we have a year almost of kids having a very different life. Um, and we've also seen a big transition to esports. Mm. Um, we talk about safeguarding in sport and it's important to protect kids. Are those same safeguards in place when it comes to the world of esport? Um, and so those are sort of the things that we're looking at at the center uh, as it relates to, to COVID specifically. And it's funny in sport because our revenue model is is quite strange because it's all about payments in advance, isn't it? And promises made, and uh, you know the media contracts are all done sort of over multiple years, and and the sponsorship. So the the determination of the powers to be to deliver on the promised revenues um, must create some in- incredible pressure in the system. For sure. I mean, and, and, and you have this really compressed timeline. I mean, this uh, a lot, I mean, the, the situation we're in now, was it in our imagination that this could happen prior to it happening, right? Mm-hmm. Was the, had anybody thought through what does this look like in terms of a scenario? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I think a lot of us haven't. Yeah, I suppose it's the known unknowns, the knowns unknowns. It's that famous right. quote that we, we really had no idea. And another interesting thing, and I mean, what a year um, you've had in, in perspective, because last year with BLM um, was a significant year uh, around athlete activism and such a fundamental part of the sports infrastructure is the voice, the freedom of voice of an athlete. Um, how... How has your organization responded for what has been a kind of almost a, a, a very speedy um, elevation um, in the conversation around what role athletes play in society? Are you excited about the opportunity or are you, are you seeing a kind of a series of, of, of problems coming your way that you're going to have to deal with? <laughs> it's both. The answer <laughs> is it's both. Exciting, and, and, and we came out early, and I'm not sure how the special rapporteur at the UN felt about us saying that athletes who choose to speak out um, uh, you know, against racial inequality um, are human rights defenders. I mean, I, lo- I, I, I read quite a bit about definitions of human rights defenders before we said that, mm-hmm. um, and, and they are putting their livelihoods at risk. They are getting death threats, right? And they're speaking up really not to any benefit to them personally, right? They're speaking their truth about this is not okay. What's happening in my community is not okay. And, and, and are you guys pondering, you know, in the imaginary world where Tokyo may happen um, and this growing, uh, growing activism and voice, I, can you see a, a sort of confusing moment where there's three athletes on a on the same podium, all expressing three different kind of views, and assuming that none of those views are offending anyone else's human rights, um, that that we could have three athletes, gold, silver, bronze, expressing very different things, uh, and using using that platform, is that something you can see in in the future? Well, therein lies therein lies the rub, right? Um, and, and we did a webinar on freedom of expression um, and looked at this specifically. And we said, under what circumstances could freedom of expression be curtailed or limited, right? And, and then we put, so we, 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 and we took it apart. So it's health and safety, right? Mm-hmm. So saying something that's inflammatory that could cause you know, some sort of danger to people inside mm-hmm. a stadium yeah. Something appears on a jumbotron, right? That's not okay. Yeah. You can't yell fire in a movie theater. <laughs> so, I mean, right? There's certain things about the nature of sport where there's health and safety of others that could be endangered, right? Mm. That's the first thing. Then there's the sporting part of it. So I've been an Olympian. Um, I've been on a medal. I've been lucky enough to be on a podium. Um, that's my Olympic moment. Is somebody else's actions, um, do they infringe on you know, my Olympic moment with mm. others, right? And so th- this is this is a concern, right? How would I feel if my fellow podium, you know, occupant doesn't shake my hand, disparages me, mm-hmm. right? That's not okay. I mean, that's that's in sport, that's that's a no-no. You don't do that. You respect your opponent. You respect, you know, those who you competed with. Um but what if it's about advocating for the human rights of others mm. in a way, right? Is there a way through stakeholder engagement, through talking with athletes and consultation, is there a way to incorporate voice um, that doesn't draw that boundary into infringing on the human rights of others who are up there with you? And I think that's the key, right? And I think the IOC is trying to look at that at least from what I've read about, you know, their consultation process, but we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated one, but um, let's go back to the most exciting. You, you intimated you've sat on a podium and we're interested in that story in itself. And, um, and, and going back to, so how did you, how did you get back? Uh, how, how did you get into soccer in, in your childhood? What was the kind of that main moment when you thought this is the sport for me? Because it's clearly your, you, you could have gone, uh, into several different sports, but you, you chose soccer or football. Um, h- how did that take place? 
Well, um, I, I was a late starter. This is back in the day, right? So I'm 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 over fifty. So uh, you know, we're we're going back into the you know nineteen mid to late nineteen seventies, mm. um, and it was a grassroots sport in my hometown. Um, it was participatory. It wasn't competitive. There weren't competitive pro clubs that had you know feeder teams. It was none of that. It was. I want to go out and run around. And I knew from playing on schoolyards that I had a a physical literacy, right? I enjoyed, I was athletic. I enjoyed being physically active and playing, you know, ball sports, things like that. So it was natural. Um, And I loved it from the minute I I participated in it. And the things I loved about it were I loved the team sport aspect, loved it. Um, Because, and I learned so much. I'm so glad I was a team sport athlete. Um, and secondly, as I progressed and stayed in the sport, I started to understand, this is hard to do in the United States at the time, that you're part of something much bigger. You're part of a world that has a love affair with the sport and it connects you. Mm. It, it, it really, over time, it's become this incredible glue that has, held, has connected me with different parts of the world in ways I couldn't have imagined. So it, it, I mean, that, that fast forwards from being running around on a schoolyard in, you know, the late 1970s, early 1980s to, you know, today, but it really has been that experience for me. And it's just such, so grateful that the sport I was in was football. And it's because so I don't know funny. if you get that in other sports. It's so funny to imagine that it was a, you know, it's a minority sport and you probably had to kind of try and sell the sport to your friends in a way that were, um, taking part in all those traditional US sports. Were you having to sell it to them? You should try this game. I remember when I was younger playing rugby, it was almost, you know, you liked the minority aspect of not many people played it because it it gave you something unique. Did you feel that at all? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I mean, there wasn't money in it, right? You didn't have the best facilities. You didn't get the weight rooms. You didn't get you know, when I played collegiately, as mm-hmm. one does in the United States, um, and, you know, you weren't the sport that got the resourcing. It mm-hmm. were the other, they were the other sports, right? Um, and you just sort of learned to live that, okay, that's life. But then I moved to Germany after university and like the whole world changed. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. And um, how did you end up as a goalkeeper? Um, how did you end up in goal? Was that was that just one day? There was a couple of jerseys, jumpers on the side, and you suddenly realized that 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 was the role for you. Well, maybe like referees, um, <laughs> I've learned that actually goalkeepers and referees have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I it it's a process of self selection, um, and yeah. I was I was an admittedly terrible. Um, you know, it's just how your brain works, I guess. Yeah. And I was running around on the field and I didn't understand it mm. as well. And I got in goal and immediately it was like, I was looking at a blurry picture and all of a sudden it was in sharp focus. And I could just understand, you know, defensive formations. I could understand the tactics better. It just made a lot of sense to me. And my hand-eye coordination, because you have to have that, uh, was pretty good. So. And, and have you always liked the pressure of being, There's, I, I've always found you know, there's a unique pressure that comes with being a goalkeeper. You are, although you're part of a team, you are very much at times on your own. You're, you're ultimately accountable. Um, mm. and, and, and yeah, and there are aspects of it that make you nutty, which <laughs> is why we're always made fun of. We have control issues. <laughs> <laughs> My team will tell you at the center that I have control issues. Um, and it's a lot of it. Think about it. You're trying to, everything you do is about prevention. And um, yep. so tell us about your first life beyond sport moments. Tell us about that. Cause there is a long journey. Just, were you in Germany before um, your life beyond sport moment or? or yeah, were, you were. I was. So, so I went to Germany you? in late 1988. So how was Europe for you as a, a West Coast girl heading out into Europe playing soccer? That must've been Heaven. a- Heaven. amazing experience heaven right uh, and I was done playing I thought I was done playing I you know I was on the national team there was no place to play after college and I had a business degree from Berkeley so mm. I'm going to work right so I go to work for Accenture 
and they send me to Germany on a project and I'm trying to walk away from a sport. And now I'm walking into a world where it's everything, Mm. right? Talk about a setup. I'm not leaving the sport. Are you kidding? I dove right back into it. So, so, you know, I ended up playing for a team over there and then I get called in for the national team at age 23. So fantastic. And were you paid when you were over in Germany? I suppose it was semi-professional or was there any, nothing. I I was work. Let's be clear. I was an amateur player on an amateur contract. I, you know, there were no professional contracts for women. And until very recently, there weren't professional contracts for women. Let's not forget that. Um, I worked for Accenture. In my free time, which wasn't much, I played football for a Bundesliga team called FSV Frankfurt. Amazing so stuff. I was working 80 hours a week and playing and kind of sleeping. Yeah. It's actually similar to Brett Gosper, who was on last week, uh, two weeks ago, um, talked about his life of going up the chain in advertising agencies and playing you know, semi-professional rugby in France. Um, it sounded like a similar lifestyle to the one you were you were living at about the same time, actually, um, yeah. as well. So tell us about your first Life Beyond Sport moment. So 1991 Women's World Cup, uh, we're in the final and we're against Norway. And we are getting, I just remember being in a defensive bunker most of the game, right? I mean, they were just coming at us and we're, we're back and... Amazingly, before half, we go up on a set piece, we go up a goal, right? So then there's a set piece the other way, which is what seemed to be happening most of the game is there's, you know, the set piece. And if you look at it on television, it looks absolutely horrific. I come flying out to, you know, box this, this free kick. And I maintain I called for it. My defenders say they didn't hear me, whatever, whatever happened on television. It's horrific. I, I run into my own player, right. Trying to, trying to box the ball, uh, take her out and, and we get scored on essentially it. Right. And it looks like, what are you doing? And I don't know what it looks like. I just know we give it, have given up a goal. We're now tied. We have right against the run of play. Um, and, and now it's halftime and I'm sitting in a locker room and this has just happened and I have to process it and I have to go out and play another, another half. I got to play the second half of the game and I'm confused. I don't know what happened. I don't know why it happened because it happens very quickly. And, you know, people in the locker room and my own team are thinking, you know, how's she doing over there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's, it's an intense moment. Um, and I also know that in the other locker room, they're probably saying, man, she's just given up a, a, a howler, mm. right? Um, we should hit, make her life miserable in the second half, mm. right? You know, and they were taller than I was, you know, Norwegian forwards are going to be taller. So it was this moment of truth for me yeah. about conquering fear. Um, it, it's and- tough to find redemption as a goalkeeper because you're not out of so little is in your control apart from when there's a shot on goal. So finding that redemption is hard, isn't it? I mean, you know, most athletes, they make a mistake and they go, right, when's my next opportunity to correct that mistake? When's my next moment for redemption? You don't even have that as a goalkeeper because everything's happening around you so much. Well, you've just given up a goal in the World Cup final. You were up 1-0 and now you're tied. And you feel that. I felt that, right? It's, it's hard. And what, it's really what are your learnings? Did you learn any skills? Did you, you know, how do you shake that? Have you learned to shake those sort of things um, a little bit more now? Or did you, from that experience, did you think, okay, this isn't helping. How do I move on beyond it? Well, that's exactly what happened. And that's why it's an indelible moment is because it's having a conversation with yourself to say, the only thing that's important right now is what I do next. Yeah. And, and it's easy to say that, perhaps. It's really hard to do it when that's just happened. Mm. And really just say, you know, the most important thing right now is the next 45 minutes. That's all that matters. That is the only thing that matters. And really being in a position to put yourself in a position where you come out flying mm. and perform. And if you do that and you're successful in doing it, you never forget it. 
And it's also something you know about yourself for the rest of your life. So you went on to win gold. So redemption happened within the next 45 minutes. Tell me how that, tell me how that felt for you. Well, I remember the first corner kick um, that happened. Uh, and again, I had to box a lot because, uh, you know, there was a, they had a couple of six foot forwards, so I, I couldn't catch um, a lot. Um, and I just came out the first corner kick and sent this thing 40 meters in the other direction. Mm. It was a very visible way of saying, okay, bring it. This is what it's going to be like all day. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, but, but that was a way of showing my teammates also, it's going to be fine back here. Don't yeah. worry. Let's just focus on winning. Don't well, worry was, about the defense. And the final score was? Two to one. Lovely. And you only let in, that was, that goal was one of five you let in across six games and you had a particularly fine tournament and it was the first FIFA Women's World Cup and uh, quite a remarkable moment for, I suppose, the journey around gender equality and, and, and football and a bit of a big step forward. Did you sense it was at the time, by the way? Were you, you know, you played with some of the, some real trail trailblazers um, in the movement. Did you sense at the time that it was a very in, important moment for the, the movement around gender and sports? No. <laughs> I, you know, you're, you're in, you're playing a tournament. You've never been in a tournament like this before, right? You have a bunch of people in funny colored suits that say FIFA wandering around. You don't know who they are. Um, you know, because again, we didn't come from a culture where we're, yeah. used to watching the men's world cup on television back then back then um and so we go to play a tournament in china and we win the tournament we're like great we won and we think it's a big deal maybe but you know we came back julie foudy said it best she said you know i came back and my friends are like you know hey where you been <laughs> you didn't answer my like I would try to call you and you know and 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 where you been like do you not like me and Julie's like yeah we just went to China and won the World Cup and they're like that's nice do you want to have lunch you know like yeah no understanding of what we've just done so and I think that was part of it because it was largely and, unknown yeah and, and it must have taken a while for for that to settle in and you I you did give me four life beyond sport moments, so I, I'm not going to treat the next one as a life beyond sport moment. Otherwise, uh, it'll call a rampage. But tell us about that. And this obviously was a significant moment, so I don't want to miss out on it. You had a game again. You had a huge. The U.S. team um, was had this this remarkable rivalry against Norway um, that that feels you know reasonably uh, uh, reasonably bitter <laughs> um, and very. Uh, very acute rivalry. Um, they said they like beating the US because the US whinges so much when they lose, um, was one of the quotes I read. Um, but, but you were playing a friendly in 95 and you, you said it was a very poignant moment for you. And I'm not giving it to you as your second life beyond sport, but I'd love to know why it was so poignant and important. So I was starting goalkeeper until 1993 when I had a combination of a very serious back injury and my, I ruptured my ACL at the same time. So I basically, for a year and a half, my legs didn't work well. And there was, you know, just, I didn't have strength, I didn't have power, I didn't have explosiveness. Um, and so I lost my starting job and I actually went to third on the depth chart. So 1995 in June, we go to play in the 1995 Women's World Cup. We lose to Norway uh, in the semifinal. Um, and I'm, again, number three on the depth chart. Um, we go to play Norway in August of, you know, a few months later in a friendly. And I'm not getting any playing time. And Brianna Scurry, who was the starter, um, couldn't play. She had been in a car accident, couldn't play in the game. So it was a decision. And I'm broke. I'm 30, 30, you know, years old. I'm broke, right? Um, I'm playing for no money on the U.S. women's team because it's before the money came in. And, you know, I'm walked away from management consulting to go do this. Um, but I need to, like, am I ever going to see the light of day playing or not? So I walked up to my coach, Tony Chico, and I said, listen, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to give you a choice. Either play me tomorrow against Norway, start me, see if I can, and, and we'll find out whether or not I can still get the job done. Right. And if I can't, 
I will retire immediately. You don't have to cut a world champion. You don't have to do that. Just I'll leave. I'll retire. I'll go back. Go. My, but if I do get the job done and I can play and we're down three starters or four starters. So we were going to be tested against Norway. Um, I'd, I, I'm done with being number three on the depth chart. And I want another crack at winning the starting job. I'll lay it all on the line one game. And he did. He gave me the chance. And I, I had a really good game. And so that set me up for actually being on the Olympic team. So I sort of put it all on the line, one game, winner take all kind of deal. And I performed. So that's why it was an incredible moment for me because it also, I know that about myself. When I absolutely positively have to perform, I will. Yeah, it sounds like you thrive under pressure. Well, I guess it's a, it's a goalkeeping kind of yeah. deal. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, so go on then, let's go on to your, your second life beyond sport moment because you've intimated it. You end up playing in 1996 in that, those home games, your second life beyond sport moment. What an opportunity to, uh, play, to play for your team at the Olympics in your effectively your home state, um, I think. That must have been quite remarkable for you. Well, and the most remarkable moment was, you know, we, we win the gold medal and immediately after the gold medal match um, in the stadium, they go into the award ceremony. Mm. So we're in our award suits. We're lined up single file, you know, Chinese team is in front of us, single file, then the U.S. team, then the Norwegian team, because we line out single file and then we go up behind the podiums, and then we all stand up on the podiums. Mm. So that's why they had us that way. So, you know, you hear we're in the tunnel and we, and they start the Olympic anthem and we walk out of the, out of the tunnel and you hear in French and English, you know, they're introducing the, the Chinese team, the, the silver medalists. And then they say, Mesdames et Messieurs, uh, le championnat de, de Jeux Olympiques, uh, les États-Unis, something like this. And they introduce the U S team and we start walking out of the tunnel behind the Chinese team. And it, it is a sonic boom. Thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it like, I felt like I got hit by noise. I mean, it was amazing just to hear this incredible, you know, we weren't playing in front of big crowds back then, mm. right? To have that kind of reception, I'll never forget it. It was amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. And by then also, you know, you're, you've been around the team for nearly, you know, for, for many, many, for quite a few years now. So you, you, you must be seen as a bit of a senior, senior pro in the team and something must be quite proud of some of the younger players that have come through for that moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm 31 at the time of the Olympic games and I had sort of, you know, I typically, when new players, young players would come into the team, um, you know, I was sort of the one that they'd have me room with, you know, to make sure that, you know, they're doing okay. And, you know, so a bit of a senior figure um, to help, to help the young kids uh, acclimate. So, yeah. So um, what a, a mate, what a remarkable soccer career you had or football career you had really, you know, winning gold, uh, winning gold, winning the world cup, um, pretty amazing stuff. And then it, it sparked off a really a, a period in the administrative, administrative side of the game. And in 2003, um, you end up being um, being offered to, to go and work at FIFA, and um, that was that must have been quite a, again another experience. You're heading off to Europe, so you probably seem pretty happy about it into the world of football again. How was working at FIFA for you as uh, as a, a, a senior woman executive? Um, how how did it feel in those days? Uh, there's the agony and the ecstasy of it. Um, is how I describe it, you know, not to take anything away from Irving Stone, but um, the ecstasy is you're in a position to do incredible things. And there was no want of opportunity to improve things um, mm. when it came to particularly women's football. Uh, now, my mandate wasn't women's football. It was, I, I had a, a mandate that was the development. So it included women's football, but it had other aspects as well. But there were so many opportunities to do a lot of really great things or try to, which, is, which was the ecstasy of it. 
Yeah. The, the difficulty was, um, is that I wasn't the only person going through an adjustment. Um, my colleagues, uh, in many cases, this was the very first time they had worked with uh, an American colleague um, and a female colleague at, at, at sort of that level. And so, um, and it's, a, and look at what we're doing. It's the sport of football. So if you're American and female, you know, what, do, what do you know about the sport? <laughs> right. And, and there may have been, you know, you forget, you hear the accent, see the person, American female, what do they know? And then they sort of, Oh yeah, she's Olympic champion. Yeah. She won the world cup. So actually she does know something about football. So it was a little bit of a, I'm not disparaging my, my teammates at all, but I'm just saying that there was a lot to process in this package, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and it sounds like it, that you've had a number of experiences that have made you, uh, have set you up for success in, in areas of pressure. Um, again, it seems like it was a... And it, it, I, I was, was definitely in a goldfish bowl, no question about it. I felt like I was in a goldfish bowl. Have you ever felt that you've had to put on a, an armour and a, a different persona to get through your work? I mean, we all... In, in some ways have to play a character. But when you are a American woman in the world of kind of football and FIFA, um, do you almost have to switch characters out of who you are to get by or is, or, or, or actually is it just Mary Harvey who gets the pressure turning up and knows how to deal with it all? Um, how much armor are you having to put on to deal with it? Well, maybe a suit of armor would have been helpful. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know that I ever had one. <laughs> um, so kind of what you, you see is what you get. Um, but I'm certainly in my older age and more nuanced about um, and, uh, and a little more, you know, deliberate and how well, I than I did back then. Well, you're sitting now at the center of so many key stakeholders um, that, that I suppose you've got to be you, you've got to see what you get really when you're managing so many different things in, in the space sport. And that takes us on to your kind of th last life beyond sport moment. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So I'm in New York. It's 2018. I'm at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank, a pretty prestigious think tank in New York City. I'm there and I'm giving, um, I'm on a panel talking about human rights and sport. And there's a Q&A at the end of the, of the panel and the Q&A, I get the question, what has sport given you? And so I start to articulate, you know, here's how what I learned in sport manifests itself in how I approach the work I do now, what I'm like as a person, all of those things. And they're all positive. Um, and afterwards, after the event's over, this woman, young woman, you know, late 20s, comes up to me and I can tell she's a little bit emotional. She's a little bit um, teary. And she said, what you said was beautiful. Um, and it really resonated with me, but um, what everything that sport gave you, all those things you said, it took from me. And I was, it was one of the Larry Nasser survivors. And I'll never forget that because every day that I go to work at the Center for Sport and Human Rights, that's who I work for. Sport, I have learned um, that wasn't my experience. My experience was positive, but there's so many, in particular girls and women and children, boys and girls, in the absence of safeguards to protect them, sport doesn't just by its very nature provide those things for people, provide that positive human development experience. It does in the presence of safeguards that ensure that sport does do that. And I wish I'd known that when I was at FIFA when we were trying to bring football into Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, I wish I'd known it then because I would have done things differently. Um, but I know it now. Um, and every single day that I go to work at the center, that's who I think about. So Mary, obviously a truly meaningful life beyond sport moment for you. And a reminder that um, if we do want to use sport for positive good, it has to be a deliberate thing. Um, and as Interestingly, as we kind of think about um, the voice of those gymnasts that came out against Larry Nasser, the former gymnast, and them speaking up, you must be heartened uh, by the last year and, and seeing such significance based around athlete voice. 
So at the same time that we're seeing this incredible increase in athlete activism, which is terrific to see athlete voice and freedom of expression, um, we're also alarmed at um, athletes being in some cases targeted for speaking mm. out. An example I'll give is in Belarus. Mm. Um, you have you know, an athlete who was put in jail um, or worse in Iran. Uh, you know, we have evidence that Navid Afkari, a wrestler, um, was targeted um, and forced under torture to confess to something he didn't do. And the reason he was identified and targeted was because he was a high profile athlete. So, you know, with it comes significant risk. Um, mm. And that's why for me, it's very clear they're human rights defenders. They're not doing this because they're gonna get, <laughs> they're gonna get a lot of headaches and a lot of difficulty and potentially high risk by reaching out. Um, so, you know, what's in it for them? Uh, their voice mm. and change. They want change to happen. So that's for me why it's so important that we view them for who they are, which are human rights defenders. And it's interesting when you talk about it, because you can reflect on feeling that governments feel threatened by the voice of an athlete, almost because they realize how powerful it is. And I suppose we can take that Marcus Rashford and on the lighter, not on the lighter side, but on a, in, in a more democratic environment, Marcus Rashford still managed to hold the government to account. And there was an element of fear from our own government over how loud his voice could become. But I suppose in the countries you're talking about, when we're talking about Iran and Belarus, the, the stakes are pretty high and the governments aren't, so they're not listening. Um, so these are high risk situations. Um, and, it, and are you as CEO of the Institute, are you in the thick of these conversations? Are you thick in the middle of these negotiations? Well, I mean, I, I mean, we're asked our opinion, certainly. And mm. we come out with thought leadership on how do you take apart freedom of expression? Mm. Under, you know, as I mentioned earlier about, you know, under what circumstances could you consider curtailing freedom of expression for safety reasons, public health, or, or even sporting reasons, you know, be it, you know, not to disparage somebody else on the podium. Mm. Um, but so, so yes, we, we provide thought leadership on that from a human rights point of view. And that's our North Star is the human right that we're talking about is freedom of expression. Mm. So we, we try to stay always grounded there. You've um, recently been um, involved in a very successful bid for the FIFA World Cup in 2026. Um, tell us your role um, for that bid, which was a, a shared bid between Canada, Mexico, and the United States? Well, uh, my role in the bid was, <laughs> was to take, you know, these brand new human rights requirements that, I mean, if you don't work in the world of human rights and you work in the world of sports, which I do, I did. Mm -hmm. Now I work in the world of sport and human rights. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you know, I worked in environmental sustainability mm -hmm. and sports administration. And I was part of a bid team of a bunch of people who probably had that background, right? They'd been part of big events before. They'd been part of the, the 20, uh, 2022 bid. And now we're doing this one. We're talking about stadiums and fan zones and, you know, hospitality. And then there are these new human rights requirements. And no one knows them because it's all brand new. And I didn't know them either. And so I was asked to basically learn it and understand how we respond to it from a bid standpoint. And so the way I did that was um, I immersed myself within the world of, of stakeholders in human rights. I, I lived <laughs> among people like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and mm. Human Rights Campaign and Athlete Ally and the ACLU, mm. right? People who represent people affected mm. by sporting events when they go badly, whose human rights are affected. And I think that's the point. And when you mentioned before about, you know, do, do governments feel threatened? I, I look at it differently. I say, you know, Marcus Rashford was directly affected mm. in a positive way, it turns out, by the food program. Mm. He is now saying, this is what this meant for me. Mm. That's authentic, 10 times out of 10. A mm. person saying, this happened to me, or this benefited me, or what have you. It, it's a way of 
accountability, but it's it's also just truth. It's just affected people who are affected by policies that government bring or or policies or or commitments that bids make to respect human rights. We hear from the people who are actually affected by it. So we're talking about privacy rights. We should talk to journalists. We're talking about freedom of, of expression. We should talk to journalists and we should talk to fan groups and we should, right? Otherwise, we're kind of in an echo chamber. We're just listening to ourselves who probably don't have any of these human rights challenges, right? We're talking from a position of privilege, talking amongst ourselves, actually, it's not so bad here. That's not the case at all. <laughs> so my job was to go into this world and understand what is it like for people who have had this experience, which hasn't been positive. What can we do to prevent that from happening? And if it does happen, how can we lessen the impact? How can we mitigate it? And if bad stuff does happen, how can we make it right? That's essentially what we were asked to do. I suppose the most well-known and established impact sport has had on a country's transformation in many ways is apartheid. And the boycott of South Africa, a country that dearly, um, dearly loved its sport, but was kept in isolation until apartheid disappeared and yet we seem to have reversed that and now what we've tried to do for the last 15 years is use sport to bring countries along to open their eyes to to welcome them into the global community um yet as we head into a beijing games in february uh when we look at the uyghur the uyghur muslims and human rights issues here how do we grapple with these and how does your organization grapple and how do you coalesce a global movement to say, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a minute, hold on a minute, before we start um, heading off into these kind of the euphoria and watching the athletes perform and the celebration of, of you know, national interests in China, don't, don't we have to address these moments? Do you, do you see that? Because it's not necessarily sport, do you see that as your responsibility, that breach of you know, human rights as a responsibility as a hu of your organization? And the point is, is that, I mean, the human, Center for Sport and Human Rights is dedicated to preventing human rights and uh, human rights abuses from occurring in the world of sport. Yeah. Offer remedy where human rights abuses have occurred hmm. and to look at raising the profile through opportunity the sport has to raise the profile of human rights and leave an enduring legacy. That's our mandate, right? So what does that look like if you're talking about a mega sporting event? We're not, because there are athletes involved. Let's assume for a minute, hypothetically, that things are fine for the athletes, right? That maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but let's, for the purpose of this discussion, let's assume they are. What about the people who are not competing in the event, but are nonetheless affected by the event. Mm. What about their rights? Yeah. So let's look at what that looks like. Well, so um, you're a journalist and you're trying to report and, um, and you get your press credential yanked from you because you reported on something not complimentary to the country where you're reporting. You can't do your job now. Mm -hmm. What about if you're a construction worker from another country who's come in to help migrant worker um, and different rules apply to you because you're not a native national of that country. And so different rules apply to you and it's not safe at the work site. Mm -hmm. And you're building a stadium that's gonna be used at the World Cup or a venue that's going to be used at the Olympic games. What about that? What about people who live, or their, their housing is in a place that's scheduled to be used for part of the event? Mm -hmm. So Brazil, you have, you have people being forcibly displaced. And with that come along kids, right? You're not just, not just, you know, a bunch of adults, you're, you're displacing people, kids, everybody. Um, so all of these things are part of human rights and sport. It's, it's and, and we look at it kind of in two ways. We look at a day-to-day -day sport, you know, so sport happens, mm -hmm. you, know, you participate, that, that's athlete abuse, that's, you know, a, a lot of different things that are germane to sport happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And then there's elite mega sporting events, mm -hmm. like the World Cup, like the Olympics, like Formula One, um, like the you know, Joshua Ruiz fight, where they can happen in 
contexts where human rights abuses either have historically happened or are happening. Yeah. Both are very much within the purview of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. That's a big brief, Mary. It is. Yeah. But thankfully, we have, I mean, we're as strong as our advisory council. Our advisory yeah. council is amazing. Yeah. I mean, well, who, our advisory sitting? council makes it happen. So is it the likes of FIFA and the IOC sitting on the advisory council or is it a, um, who sits on that council that, that has that real punch? Well, we're going to start with our founding organizations, right? The two, and I'm going to be a, a human rights geek for a minute. Um, so if, if you're into international human rights, there's sort of two places where it's enshrined, right? One is, is the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, OHCHR. It's a part of the UN that's dedicated to protection of human rights. Then you have the ILO and the ILO around, right? And it's tripartite structure, but that's where between those two organizations, that's where internationally recognized human rights live. Yeah. Those two organizations are founding members of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Very powerful. Yeah. Right, that's, that's legitimacy. So we're not just anybody's idea of human rights or my version of human rights or Nick Keller's idea of human rights. These this is hardcore human rights, right? And do you have, and, do you have uh, media? Uh, so the one area of leverage that I think I, I'm surprised I, we haven't seen is the likes of the big TV broadcasters who are paying the big money way above the sponsors now. Um, leveraging their power over human rights um, and being really clear that they're not willing to fund events that aren't matched up to the human rights statements and ethics that they themselves as broadcasters probably sign up to themselves. Um, are they part of your advisory council? They're super, but they're a really powerful group of organizations within sports. They are, um, and and there are broadcasters who are part of our advisory council: Sky, mm -hmm. BT Sport, mm -hmm. um, Discovery, the ITN, and others. Mm -hmm. um, what's What's interesting about broadcasters is, I mean, they are the lion's share of money that mm -hmm. comes into this sport. We we know that broadcast rights. But also, if you think about it, um, if you go to let's say you're the host feed for the Olympics, mm -hmm. or the host feed for you know, an event, a, a big boxing match in, you know, UAE or someplace, you're mobilizing a small army of people to go to that country and put on that event, right? These are your employees or contractors, whatever, but they're your people. And so they are, you know, to do this job and maybe they didn't have a say in where these events were being staged. They own the rights and they're saying, okay, so you're going to have an event here. And they're like, well, wait a minute really? Uh, I got to send a team of 500 people to go or 100 people, whatever producers, you know, all the different people that need to put on a big broadcast, um, send them to that country and be there for the duration of the event and all the risk that goes along with that. If it's a high risk context, right? So that's also risk, right? I mean, broadcasters are very much in that risk. Uh, I'll give an example, NBC. Are you surprised they haven't leveraged their power to get rights holders to be more compliant? Um, I don't know that surprise is the word. I mean, they're big companies that have, I think one of the things that we work on at the center is where's leverage? Where's their room to maneuver, mm. right? And I think as an individual, it's, it's a bit like being, being a former member of the U.S. Women's National Team, as an individual, your voice is small, mm. even though it, it might be have, you know, for broadcasters, a lot of money attached to it, but you're vulnerable, potentially. But if you're in a cohort of others um, and you all say this isn't OK or we have concerns, um, then it becomes more powerful. So I think there's there's safety in numbers. Mm. And one of the things we do at the center is is help be their voice. So we, we, we raise these concerns in, in a safe space, and then we raise these concerns with those who are putting on the event and say, hey, there, there are concerns here. Mm. Um, so we try to foster that safe place for people to say, listen, we're, we, we have a problem with this or, or we're concerned about this. So look, we'd, um, we've, we've had a lot, we've been in two parts. I think if um, 
of the interview. So um, I'll, I'll tell everyone that we had to take a bit of a break here. So uh, Mary could jump on a phone call um, as well. So um, thanks for spending so much time and, and coming back on for part two, as I like, I like to call it. Um, so my final question is, what are you feeling optimistic about um, in sport? It's really, we're in a tough old spot at the moment, but I'd love to find a little glimmer of optimism um, over how sport is going to help the world, I suppose, come back better. Athlete voice. Athlete voice. Athlete voice is incredible. Um, and it, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not objective, right? I'm a horror athlete myself, but athlete voice, think about what, I mean, when, when an entire league shut down, right? The NBA didn't play, right? When, and, and the player said, this is not okay. Athlete voice is lifting the veil on, on, on widespread athlete abuse. Mm. It's athlete voice that's showing that. Athlete voice will be what, what will help sports governance get it right. Mm. I do believe that. Um, and there's a fear of athlete voice, but I think athlete voice is, it's authentic. Um, and it's, it's athletes saying, you know, I've, I've been through all areas of sport and I have a few things to say, or I've lived in my community and I'm treated one way off the court and another way on the court. That's not okay with me. Um, that's a beautiful thing. And so I think athlete voice is, is the part that gives me energy. Um, and I think offers tremendous promise um, in terms of the way forward for sport. Um, Mary, thank you very much. Um, it's been great. Um, number one, hearing about your professional career and well, not professional career, but your elite career, let's call it. Um, and uh, your amazing navigation through the world of sports administration, bringing you at the end of the day to um, your present role um, around human rights and sport. And I'm sure you're going to be um, hugely effective and we wish you good luck at Beyond Sport for all the work you do. And, um, and thank you very much for the, the time you've spent with us. And I hope you and your family stay healthy over the coming months. Thanks, Nick, you, to you as well. And, and thank you so much for the invitation to, uh, to be on the podcast. So thank you uh, for joining me for the latest episode of Life Beyond Sport. New episodes come out each Monday, so please don't forget to like, subscribe and follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen on. Thank you very much and take care out there.